Welcome back to Recorded Conversations, the podcast that's dedicated to compassionately considering all perspectives while engaging in authentic, connected dialogue. I'm Danielle Kingstrom. Today's episode features my friend, Adam Anderson. I've known Adam for a little bit, and I've enjoyed having discussions with him. I've enjoyed disagreeing with him. I've enjoyed learning from him. And in this episode, he shares a space with me. And for that, I am grateful. Adam is a singer-songwriter who writes and is now producing and releasing his own material. He is currently working on his debut album and writing a book that will be released along with the album. He grew up as a devout evangelical Christian, and he has since departed from that belief system to explore new schools of thought and more inclusive ways of life. Be Still is the first single from his upcoming album, and it's available for streaming on Spotify and Apple Music, produced by Grant Turley Audio in Houston, Texas. For more of his music, a free song download, and to pre-order his album and book, please check out his social media bios or check out the link in the show notes of this episode. If you want to indulge in his random miscellaneous thought processes, his blog information has been left in the podcast notes, and I will also be sharing it on the links of my social media pages as well. We have a fun discussion. We kind of delve into a little bit of exploring and understanding that which we disagree with, that which we've been um, programmed to be disagreeable to, to find as offensive. And so mainly we talk about Trump, not mainly, but a little bit. And then we kind of explore some ideas that would benefit a comprehensive sexual education and how the church can have its hand in that as well. And Adam shares a little bit just about who he is. And um, unfortunately, we didn't get to talk too much about his music. So I would like to invite him back so that you can hear more about his music. And once his book is released, we can talk about that. As always, listeners, I just ask you to compassionately consider the perspective of Adam Anderson. Enjoy the episode. talking points did include Trump and I noticed that he's trending right now on Twitter I think hashtag um, it was something really stupid like he's a failure or something and um, because he's been very outspoken on Twitter lately more than usual and um, so he is you know basically trying to drum up support to get people to vote and whatnot and um shit sorry trump is a laughing stock that's the hashtag and a lot of it is centered on these tweets where he's talking about illinois has no place to go new york has gone to hell vote trump uh california is going to hell vote trump and i'm like that is one of the most blatant um campaign slogans i've ever seen used in my almost 40 years on this planet and it, I'm kind of in this position where I'm like, is this really taking place right now? Like, is this unfolding for us? This is our president. And you had mentioned that there was some 
good discussion on just Trump's medical condition. And so I'm wondering if we can weave those together and if I can get your opinion and all that and where you, what do you think about what happened with Trump and COVID and then how he's acting now? Oh, um, it, it seems like it's either dangerous or shitty and there is no middle ground. <laughs> Like it's, um, I, I bought with an audio or audible credit that I had, I got, uh, the book that is, I think it was his niece released. It was like a psychologist, Mary Trump. And the more that I read into that and learn about like how he was brought up and what his childhood was like and what he was like as a child and adolescent, the more I'm just like, i like, I'm not going to hear anything that this person says or does and go like, whoa, I can't believe it. <laughs> like, it, uh, I, I try to, I want to stay open to new information, but also, like, uh, this person seems kind of like a, uh, a classic case of someone who is, um, desperate for attention to someone and someone to say that he was proud of him and he never got it. And eventually his, uh, his parents quit disciplining him and they rewarded um, brutality and aggression more than anything else. And it was all about like conquering and being a winner. And that's how his dad talked and his dad seemed worse than he is. And so mm. like, I, um, yeah, as far as his, his medical condition, um, there's been lots of, as I've been involved on social media, which is mainly Facebook. I like, I, I can't really handle Twitter. <laughs> um, Instagram doesn't allow for a discussion for the most time. And I'm all about the discussion yeah. generally. So. Yeah. Um, as far as his condition goes, there's been people uh, saying everything from I hope he dies to um, he's to reacting as him like being more of a martyr um, to trying to find like these people that are well-intentioned are trying to find a middle ground saying like, Hey, let's not forget our humanity in the midst of this. Like he's still a person. And like, I just don't know if uh, humanity and not hoping for the best for him are mutually exclusive, <laughs> especially considering like, I mean, that feels really dangerous to say, but um, uh yeah, I, I don't, I mean, hoping for the fall of the king or the tyrant yeah. has never really been deemed uh, less than human. It's It just seems like people that insinuate such don't seem to recognize him as the tyrant that he is. Um, but also it's tough because like I, like I've never wanted to be a person that wished harm on anyone. Yeah. And really like personally, like I don't 
I hope he dies necessarily if I really sit and think about it. I I just hope I wish he wouldn't be able to be the president anymore. That's it. <laughs> like uh, yeah. Real quick. Even though that would land us in maybe a worse situation with Pence being thrown up as the VP. I I don't know. And and it's kind of um yeah, my response deeper than my immediate reaction is, is a little more. Yeah. Does your, does your immediate reaction kind of mimic a lot of what's out there, though? I mean, so let me yeah. just backtrack. I would never wish anyone dead. You said that, right? And me too. Like, I'm like, intentionally, I would never want anyone to have any harm to them. But our reactions do say things like that, our thoughts. And as long as they stay in the thought area... I'm totally cool with people having that reaction and then hopefully doing what I do. And when I have a reaction like that, I'm like, that's not nice, Danielle. And right away, it's like, okay, we're going to descend. Let's go into, you know, more reflective thinking about this. What do we really hope for? Because that, that reactive component of our thought process, we too easily let trickle out to our fingertips, to our voices. And I think we put that into the universe and I worry about karma and I think about my, I want to put love into the universe. So if I let that thought translate and go out, that is going to be imitated. That feeling is going to be mirrored and it could perpetuate. And so it's important that we allow ourselves to have like an emotive reaction in our thoughts, but we need to also have the control to go, okay, you know, that was mean. Don't say that. Don't think that. Right. So like, for instance, the last month has been hell in my personal life. And like, I was like, I was just like thinking things like, why is he even still on this planet? Right. Like my father-in-law, for instance, just because it's like so much is pushing against me. And when you feel that strongly opposed against by someone else or some other idea, it does really flick at that ego. And that ego wants to help you feel better. And so we're like thinking things to calm ourselves, to protect ourselves, to remind ourselves we're not actually that, but okay, we're cool with it. And in this climate, it's like no one cares about reflection. No one is going, oh, I shouldn't think that. They're going, that sounds really good. Da, 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 you know, click, post, retweet, share. And then we are exacerbating the problem because now we aren't we imitating Trump in that case in a lot of regards because he's a reactive president. And then I'm like, well, if we're just as reactive, we're no better. But when we are drawn to that confrontation. My friend, he's a life coach and a podcaster and an author. His name is Jamal Javanji. And he's been talking a lot about how, you know, this is just a reflection of us. And our presidents are a reflection of our society. And we're not learning from it. And we're not trying to just stop it. Because what happens is we get so tied up in our feelings that we become what we hate. And we are like, but no, I have all these good arguments to justify why it's okay for me to hate this because I slapped a evil label on it. 
And yeah. so I just find that is my constant tension is like, I'm always coming across other people where I'm like, can't we engage and look at Trump like a human? And like you said, that book reveals a lot of intimate details about what kind of life he had. And when you look at what he went through, it's hard not to, for me, it's hard not to empathize, but not to say, but what he's doing is right, but to just go, no, I get why he is this way. Look at all of these perceived lacks he has in his life that he never had met as a child. And he's been clinging to that. And then, of course, saying that, it means you're, you must vote for Trump. Oh, you're a Trump supporter. But it's like, no, I just want to understand that the monster and the madness. And if we're willing to understand the monster and the madness, what it brings us to is a scared little child who never got what he wanted and is trying to fill the voids of the love and the support and the encouragement he didn't get. So that's my wrestling with it. And I'm sure you're probably in that same space, right? You're wrestling with it, but you're like, damn it. If he would only stop doing this shit, right? Then we wouldn't have to react. Or if we could just transition What say you? Yeah, um, it it really. <laughs> uh, I was, I'd heard something from it was uh, one of my favorite musicians a while back, and he was quoting somebody, but I can't find that quote for the life of me. And it's uh, the idea that like what upsets us most about other people is what upsets us most about ourselves, mm-hmm. and. Um, I I get that like there is a at least fraction of um everything that Trump represents because at the end of the day none of us know him as a person we just we just know like yeah all that we see which is a lot but uh it and it, it became uh, a couple of years ago, I was reading different um, articles saying like Trump was more of an idea than a person. Mm. Uh, and the ideas that Trump represents uh, loudly, it, like that's present at some degree in all of us. And I get that. And I, I think we should we should try to be ever maybe increasingly mindful of that and that would make us better people. But also it just it feels to me as someone who like has been trying to to dig up and stand on middle ground for like years, ever since like when I was a Christian, that was one of my um mantras i guess is like how can we reconcile how can we reconcile our differences how can we come together and what can we what can we unite to all of us say about each other and um it just seems to me now like the middle ground is just dissolving faster Mm -hmm. and faster every day which is it's really uh it's really difficult for for me to personally process that and uh like i um i guess increasingly i say things and think things and feel things that i almost don't recognize 
Um, it's like, man, I never thought I would um, feel this strongly so hard on either side of um mm-hmm. yeah like uh, i don't know like i uh for instance the the protests that have been taking place the blm protests um i feel like the more like civil and moderate uh, and respectable response to that is like I support the protests and the heart of it, but like the destruction of property and yeah. I've the more I learn about like their cause and the heart of it, the more like it scares me honestly. But the more I'm like, you know what? I'm I don't think I'm totally against even the destruction of property, even, even though like it. Um, and it, it's weird. Like I never wanted to be that person. I never yeah. wanted to um, to root against anyone. Um, and I, and I know at the end of the day, as I like, as I'm involved with discussions about this kind of stuff on Facebook and with, with different people, um, I know that like. any stance you take on this hurts somebody. It just does. Yeah. It's just a matter of like, who do you feel like is worth hurting? And mm. that's crazy to me. But and, it feels like the reality that we're in. And when we want to opt out of taking a stance at all, then I feel backed into a corner of taking, then it's assumed that I'm taking the opposing stance of the person that wants me to take the stance. Like, yeah. I try really hard to do the same thing. Like I'm going to stand in the middle and I'm going to look at both sides. And I, I often wonder, do I need to make a decision or can I just watch this? Well, if you don't make a decision, then you're already choosing. Am I? I'm choosing to not make a decision. Yes. And when you do that, like I said, I feel backed into a corner if I'm getting into it with someone and they're like, well, you need to pick a side. And it's like, well, do I? Cause like, I go back to the Bible and I know a lot of people are coming up to this age where they're like, I reject the Bible. The Bible's bullshit. Da, 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 da. But at the heart of it, the teachings of Jesus are still very prevalent for me and matter to me. And I model my life after the teachings of Jesus. And all I can see in there is that he didn't take sides. He spoke his truth. He saw what he saw. He spoke about what he saw and most of the part he wasn't going see this see this see that don't do that do you see this example this is bad he was going here's an example of what is good and i i resonate with this idea that when we draw lines jesus is in the middle trying to unite us trying to get us to hold our hands together and that's how I want to be. I, I don't want to pick sides, right? Like my parents got divorced and my mom forced me to pick a side. And I'm like, I don't want to pick a side. Like you're both my parents and her parents had done that to her. And it was like, even in those close personal things, we can see that resonating outward reflecting. People are always trying to force us to pick a side, but I'm like, aren't we all in this together? And do we have to pick a side or can we go, we see this, this is wrong. And I know that the only power I have 
is to just not do what I see is wrong and to do the opposite of it, to do what is loving in spite of this taking place. Does that necessarily mean I'm not doing anything? Or does that mean that I'm acknowledging that only my actions can affect the people in my proximity? And so long as I don't duplicate what you're telling me is bad, isn't, I mean, aren't I good then? And that's the, that's the dangerous, divisive nature that we're seeing unfold and just really just pull people in and it's drowning everybody. And then the people like us that are like, I just want to be on the middle and I want to pull you both back up. It's like, if we try and pull either side, they're going to pull us down with them. So how do we stay above? <laughs> yeah. I, um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll just keep trying to figure it out. But I mean, it's a, it's a good thought process for a lot of people. I mean, just for the audience listening, like, how do we do it? Let's go to something else, because I really liked one of the other topics that you had suggested we discuss, and that was regarding sex, of course, um, and how can Christians encourage and promote honest sexual education? So I wanted to hear your thoughts on that, and not so much if you have the solution, but what have you noticed is problematic, and how could we transition to make that more resolved? Um, so the, I'd say the majority of it's probably all, no, it's the majority, the majority of, uh, what I've heard about, uh, Christians being involved with sex education in America over the years. Um, so you're listening, this podcast called straight white American Jesus. Yeah. Straight white American Jesus. And uh, this guy, one of the guys on the podcast, it's, it's fantastic <laughs> to listen to. These guys are, uh, they, they really. I'm writing, it, I'm writing it down so I don't forget. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. It, so one of the guys on the podcast started this mini series within the podcast called The Orange Wave, where he started trying to look at where the uh, conservative or the Christian right came from, like the origins of it as of the 1960s. And um, listening through that, and uh, it's, he packs a lot of information into like an hour and a half or whatever and interviews different people who are experts on um, different parts of the rise of the Christian right, but the one with, with sex education uh, and how the the censorship in that like christianity had a hand in and sex education was a part of really in its origins like fear-mongering and um i don't want to like paint an absolute picture of christians as unable to be honest with with sex education but it just uh it seems like looking back on my experience um i wonder to what extent that it's counterintuitive to their objective to avoid sexual immorality and lust and the ideas of it and like how how much can you talk about a vagina explicitly before you got dudes with 
boners in class or whatever, and you feel responsible for that as a as a Christian witness, causing a little one to stumble or causing someone to to lust as much as you can cause someone to lust. Um, well, let me interject there though. That's a funny thing too because I notice I've actually advised a client who wanted help being able to talk about sex so that every time he didn't talk, he's talked about sex, he didn't get aroused. And what I noticed happened, what was working between us was talking about it. It's like the weirdest thing. It's like the more you talk about something, the less mysterious it becomes, right? And so I get how people are like, we don't want to just flash images of naked bodies to eight-year-olds and be like biology. But if you do it enough, like the Europeans do it, you desensitize that immediate sexual arousal that stirs because they're going, that's just a body. And only when I apply a context to it only when I also include consent to it, only when I'm interacting with it in the context under consent, can I put that sexual lens over it. But I think the the downfall right there in that fear is what if we did say, okay, the first time they might be giddy and embarrassed and I don't know what to do or aroused. But then number one, if you acknowledge that, doesn't everyone in the room feel a little less alone and a little less humiliated because everybody else is also experiencing that same initial surge of, I don't know what this is. And then you're uniting them in that. So nobody's different. They're all experiencing it. That doesn't mean they're touching each other. That just means they're acknowledging as a adolescent, I do experience sexual arousal and I want to understand why. Then we continue to give them these images and this information Again, you're removing the mystery. You're removing the taboo. You're removing the this that inner seeking that we have for learning about what we're not supposed to learn about, right? And so if you do that to kids, which is what I've done, right? Like I do that with my kids. I talk about sex that it's boring. I talk about the human form. They're like, uh-huh, yeah, we know, mom. Cool, this is boring. And sometimes they're like, well, I have questions, right? And I mean, I've always just been open with my kids. I didn't hide my period. I didn't hide postpartum. I didn't hide weird, gross shit of pregnancy, of, of being a woman. Um, and I mean, even when the, my little boys were growing up and experiencing erections and all of that stuff, I was like, let's talk about it because we have to remove the mystery. We have to take it out of the closet. We can't hide it because when we do, they don't have their questions answered. And I feel that then they are more... They are they are more at a greater risk for it being manipulated, exploited, and and used against them instead of them having the power and the information to go. I know what you're trying to do, and that shit ain't appropriate. Like, bye. Instead of going, wait, what is this? And so I just wanted to just say that I think that would be an immediate start is desensitizing the sexual arousal out of it so that we can look at it from a biological standpoint and understand the physiological response and understand that everybody experiences these things. And yes, boys and girls experience it differently. But if we take that, um, that, that fear out of, Ooh, if we show them a naked body, what does it mean? Instead of going, that means that they won't be so curious to explore a naked body without having their questions answered and without being fully informed on what they're freaking doing. So from there, 
that would be one solution, I suppose, huh? <laughs> yeah, I 100% agree with you. And I think it, it goes along with um, what I, I kind of learned through, I don't know if you've heard of the philosopher Pete Rollins. I've heard um, his name, yeah. I've, I've never read his work, but I know a lot of people like him. He really, uh, he has a lot of interesting stuff to say. I would, um, like concerning this topic, if you were to dive into any of his books, I would recommend The Divine Magician. Uh, he talks about um, how when something is presented as forbidden or taboo, it becomes inherently more desirable. Mm-hmm. And he tells a story, I think, I think it's about the Mona Lisa, that like when it was originally painted, it wasn't considered valuable by anybody. But then there was a rumor that someone stole it and it became increasingly valuable through that story over time. So it's like, wow, like it was stolen and uh, it gave it value. And um, he, he paints a picture of, of that kind of thing with the forbidden fruit mentality that's in the, uh, in the Genesis uh, creation story. And um paints us like a a beautiful like metaphor part of the human condition it's just like if if something is presented as like the cookies that you most want are the ones in the jar that you're not supposed to have mm-hmm. um, and like so i i agree with what you said a hundred percent i i just wonder how um how many other, I don't know, Christians, Christian educators in America where the, it seems like the prominent form of Christianity is evangelical Christianity, which kind of comes with a lot of lines and rules. Um, yes. I, I wonder, like, could that ever be a norm? It was like, because I, I, I remember actually hearing, um, now I think about it in that orange wave series that originally Christians were the ones pushing for comprehensive sex education, but as Christianity in America got more in bed with the conservative politics and conservative side of things, it became actually, um, this sounds crazy, but, uh, it, it was infused with a, uh, segregation agenda and um the way that like sexual immorality was paired with interracial um Mm, sexual interactions and interracial couples it's it's pretty it's pretty nuts how that and you know i've often heard you know differing stories about the foundations of the conservatives and the flip-flop from the south to the north and what the liberals agenda really was and i have read pieces that point to the conservatives and the christians both deciding to line up on the anti-abortion movement and for whatever reason so many conservatives were actually against that because they did they didn't want to 
um, prevent certain people from obtaining abortions. Because if we look back, Planned Parenthood, Margaret Sanger, eugenicist, she was for the eradication of black children, of any person of color, of anyone with with lower intelligence. I mean, poor people, prostitutes, second-class citizens, you name it. If you didn't speak proper English, she didn't think that you deserved to be there. They wanted to create, you know, this super race. And we've seen that present in century to century to century. There's always somebody that wants to preserve the race and, 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 and protect humanity by getting rid of the, you know, basically breeding horses through humans. And so I've seen those connections there. And that's why the conservatives had opposed it, because they actually were kind of on board with Sanger and her agenda. And so there was a big kerfuffle. And I mean, the 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 um, pro-life group eventually got his claw, got their claws in the the conservatives and the Christians. But then you saw the break with the, the liberals and the progressives and the liberal movement of the 60s and 70s. I don't believe looked anything like what we see now. I mean, I think it was really about that hippie generation. And that's kind of, that's my perception of basically the Democrats and the liberal agenda from that time wave. You know, the hippies were trying to make things political and only for the greater good. Some, some fra- factions of it, of course. But I mean, that's what I think my parents came out of was they thought that's what the Democrats stood for. But we were on where we are now, it sometimes it seems like con- the conservatives and the Republicans are automatically Christian. And with the Democrats and liberals, you're like, we just don't know anymore. Where we used to know that there were everybody in every party. And that is a hard division that we've seen too. And with that, that means we haven't had any congruency with sex ed because you've got the opposing sides sticking to their stances and their positions. And for whatever reason, we can't have agreement between the two parties. Do you see that as being kind of an overarching um, like obstacle for the sex ed within Christianity too? If we have, you know, the the Christian conservatives or the Christian liberals, that is. Um, yeah, I guess, like, increasingly, as we have a president who has kind of built his campaign on uh, the Democrats are the problem, um, and having to clarify that when, if you're a Republican who doesn't support Trump, you got to really clarify that you don't support Trump because since many people have left the Republican party because of the things that Trump has represented and said, um, yeah, it, it seems that like as the division between conservatives, liberals, Republicans, Democrats drives deeper, it'll, It'll make everything harder. Um, but I I don't know how... I don't know if that would affect accurate or comprehensive or helpful sex education um, as much as 
prevailing, what seems to be the prevailing theology with American Christianity. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> it's, um, it's a difficult topic. I mean, just to try and weave in ideas on what we could do and then to have to pull back a minute and go, wait, which side is going to be opposed to this and which side is going to pick this up? And then I look at it like, why did everything have to become political, right? Why did education and sexual education within the public school system have to become political? Why do teachers need to be political? And when we throw politics into the erotic, it, I mean, in my view, it just, they, they push so hard against each other because the erotic is about inclusion and unity and, and, and otherness and politics is literally about division and sides and, you know, who has the better idea and what should be the prevailing thought and belief. And it's like a new religion that is taken over and is weaving its tentacles in everything. And I honestly don't see any kind of comprehensive sexual education coming out of any of those stratospheres until, I don't know, there's some kind of collective consciousness <laughs> where people are like, not always assuming that what is being presented could be manipulated or exploited. I mean, yeah, there's that probability, but why do we always go to the pessimistic views instead of trying to actualize the optimistic potentiality, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, um, I kind of come at it a different way now a days. Uh, it, it seems like, um, more I listen to the the waves and the chaos uh, going on in in the country and through like as social media becomes more of our like part of our physical reality than just virtual reality um, it seems to me everything's always been political um, but not in the sense of everything has a side that it's on. Um, but it, the more that I try to, as much as I can without just criticizing my mental health as a whole, uh, tangle myself up in, in politics and what's going on. It seems to me that politics is just like, politics exists in church it exists in school it exists in whatever club you're in and it's just how a group of people live together how they figure it out and so like um it it seems like everything has been in bed with politics since its inception uh like um maybe not even on purpose, but just like you need um, 
you need funding to help something become more common and prevalent. And a lot of times the big spenders are more political and um, I don't know. It, it just seems like everything that's unhealthy about realizing that everything is political has been capitalized on uh, throughout Trump's campaign. And um, yeah, I wish, I wish I was more like well-read on the history of sex education in America. It just, uh, as like, I don't know, I, I hear people got it in school. Maybe I got it in school. I don't really remember. Not really accurate or comprehensive no. sex education. Um, and it does seem to me that the more, the more taboo that sex is and the more forbidden it is, the more unwanted consequences are going to be brought about. Um, but yeah, I don't have a whole lot of knowledge on it besides that. I'm just very, I'm very interested in, in uh, what traditional, I guess, whoever would call themselves traditional Christians would allow in that area and, mm. and what they would, um, what they are promote for this for like the sake of the future of the youth. Um, however close it got to stepping on the lines of their theology, like I, that's just yeah. interesting. Well, yeah, it is. And you know, more than that, it's, it sometimes feels like it seems like Christianity has both been trying to shut the door and open the door on having the sexual conversation, but something bad happens and it makes national headlines and it's like taken as a symbol or a sign to not broach that topic because now how do we dance around sex trafficking? How do we dance around pedophile rings? How do we talk about people who have child porn you know how do we talk about like in my town how did we talk about finding out we had three pedophiles and a daycare provider who was allowing her son to molest children and nobody wanted to talk about it they just wanted to hurry up and shut up about it because it was embarrassing to talk about and I can understand that I mean people are traumatized sexually and it can take decades for them to work out that trauma but if we're not willing to talk about it like and, and maybe the catholic church could step up and say something declarative and that would help people reconcile the pain that's come out of the catholic church and the cover-up that would be a great way to tiptoe into an erotic theology that we can incorporate into what we already believe to be about the nature of god in a way that filters this so that people can understand sex in a spiritual sense. You know, what's interesting is I often ask my clients, you know, what do they think about sex in a, under a spiritual lens? Like, how is sex spiritual? And many times they're like, uh, 
It's not. And I think, really? Okay, let's talk about that. Let's unpack that. Why isn't it? And when you start to talk to people about what are some of the things you do to set the mood, for instance, right? You're talking about candles. You're talking about music. You're talking about, you know, women like to go freshen up, shower, men shower. Everybody showers. We're cleaning ourselves. We might be slipping into something more comfortable or revealing. We might be, you know, shutting the lights off, locking the doors, making sure we've eaten first. When you look at those little things that we do before we have sex, I'm always like, how do you not see that? Like that's stuff Jesus did when he was just hanging out with peeps and we're like, hey, let's do this Eucharist thing, okay? And, um, you know, there was so much feasting in the Bible and, I mean, Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. And I think we have all of these beautiful examples in the Bible telling us what is erotic. And then to go over here and say, but I compartmentalize. Sex and spirituality are separate. What about this idea of mind, body, and spirit? We can't have that integration unless we're willing to integrate sexuality and spirituality. And I think that was the rift in the church, that whole division of flesh and spirit, right? And so how do we tie that back together and show people that, you know, they're actually on the same frequency as, you know, everything else we're aiming for and how do we tie it together? And so it, I think maybe that's what Christianity needs to do. Embrace sexuality as spiritual, you know, like, hi, it, it didn't God make you and give you these parts? And how are we separating that? Like, why would we, why wouldn't we want to make that spiritual? And it goes to that idea. I don't want to think about Jesus watching me have sex. Right. And so how do we, <laughs> But there's so much of that, those structures too, that idea that Jesus is just walking around watching you or God's looking down at you from a big telescope whenever he feels like it. That I think still is tied to these views. I think a lot of people are trying to like break out of the, these views that there's this, this present God or Jesus watching us. We have angel and devils on our shoulders and, and that if we fuck up, we're going to hell right? Like these are some of these ideas that I really do think impact the potential of an erotic theology. I say it all the time when I'm like, people get so tied up and outraged over these little things. And I'm like, they're not having sex. They're not using sex spiritually. They're not integrating it into their lives. We have the division and their theology of even hell, I think has a great impact on a person's willingness to talk about sex. And that's a whole nother long story that I could certainly unpack. But I just noticed this, this kind of logical equation, believing in hell. A lot of people who believe in a hell are also, I don't want to say prudish, but very reserved and uncertain about talking about sex. And you had said something about the belief in an external hell, um, And you had actually juxtaposed that with incarceration rates in our country and these two kind of parallel ideologies that you saw here at play. And so it's interesting that when I'm over here struggling, going, if you people would get over your belief in hell, we could talk about sex better. And you're like, hey, hell here in this ideology might be contributing to that. So I'd really like to hear your thoughts on that. Just as whatever kind of poking you saw in that, correlation 
Yeah. Um, so. Uh, or we need to wrap this up. Are you short on time here? Okay. No, you're good. Okay. Um, after listening to the most recent episode of the podcast, um, I felt like I should do my homework on like one of the things that I brought up to talk about. Because I'm like, here's this guy who toured with ACDC and wrote this awesome book and he's really smart and you're going to interview me. And so I just went. So I did, uh, I did kind of some, some brushing up on that and um, I was really surprised at what I found at like, uh, across several different sources, including like Pew Research, Gallup, uh, University of Oregon. Let's see, there's some other. Uh, minimize this real quick. Nope, not that. Why that's being weird. Uh, National Geographic, The New Yorker. Um, yeah, so one of the first things to to go for me with Christianity four years ago or so was belief in an eternal hell. And uh, I came to a point where I was like, it seems like what the Bible says about this isn't as open and shut as I was taught it was. And uh, then thinking on it more and researching more, I got to a point where I'm like, I don't know how to know for sure about this, but I just don't want to be a part of propagating this anymore. And um, as I was kind of moving out of that, I saw um, based on recommend recommendation of a Facebook friend, I saw this documentary called 13th and, um, this woman set out to, have you heard of it by any chance? Oh shoot. Hold on a second. You got muted. Oh, because I muted myself. Haha. <laughs> um, Michelle Alexander, right? Based on Michelle Alexander's book. Um, maybe. Yeah, I think that's what it is. I've seen it. I know what you're talking about. Well, the, um, if you remember the, the person that, um, created the documentary said that she set out to look into private prisons and the injustice that that has brought about and people trying to like, um, like the more people that you have in, your private prisons, the more money that you and your company or foundation gets or whatever. And what she found was that over the past 50, 60 years, um, incarceration has been greatly, greatly skewed racially towards black people. And, um, but as I, as I watched that, it really, there was a connection in my brain that I never really had before. I'm like, the whole idea of a prison for, um, for criminals in the eyes of people that haven't been incarcerated 
or aren't in prison is like we need to remove that part of society and put them elsewhere because they're yeah. making it worse and uh, it just had a very out of sight out of mind vibe to me which felt very much like what people like was behind belief about hell and um it, it was very interesting to me as I had like questions about hell initially that people seem to believe that we need to have an eternal hell because there needs to be justice. Yeah. But also the theology that I was raised with is people who go to hell, go to hell because they don't believe in Jesus as their Lord and savior. And so there is this like running back and forth, um, with a lot of Christians of like, yeah, faith alone. It's about what Jesus did on the cross, not about what you do in your life. And it's all comes down to his actions because none of us can earn heaven. But then to, Oh, we need help because people that did really bad things shouldn't be in heaven. And I, that seemed to connect to me to, um, America seems to have one of the highest population of Christians who believe in hell in the world and is also leads the world in incarceration. And um, I wondered if there was a relationship between that or a positive correlation of any kind. And uh, I was really surprised to find that, uh, let's see seemed that incarceration was on the rise from like 2000 to 2005, 2010, and started decreasing as of 2010. Um, I just realized I put together a lot of information that's very hard to sum up. But uh, <laughs> it seems that belief in hell is just as high in America as it was a decade ago but also there's been this campaign on behalf of Christians to embrace a more inclusive faith, whereas <clears throat> hell would be exclusive of people that don't deserve to be in heaven, aren't supposed to be there. And um, uh, American belief in hell as of 2016 has dropped from 71% to 58% um, of people that were surveyed, which is like a thousand Christians or something. Um, I think what the idea this- of hell also does is it gives people permission to kind of, like you said, the open and shut thing where mm-hmm. we're like, oh, you transgressed me and you will be punished. And I feel better about that. Now I can cut and run and I don't have to think about this anymore. But I think it gets clogged in us. And I notice, just from my own personal anecdotal observations, all the people that I have in my life that do believe in hell have limited understanding and empathy for other people who have gone through tougher situations. And they also um, are Trump voters in this case. And so that I, I don't think that correlation is, you know, absolute, but 
the more I pay attention, even with trying to understand, the more I cannot help but see that correlation of the Trump, the conservative, the Christian that believes in hell and how they're all tied together and all of these people kind of bounce around all these different characteristics. But it is so it's so debilitating to the potential of healing and resolution. And I think that has a lot to do with why it's so hard for this country to talk about things like reconciliation or reparations, for instance. I mean, I know that's why I was against reparations when I was, because I just couldn't get on board with saying we should have a national discussion until, again, this whole collective theology changes and that we stop thinking that God is going to condemn and seek retribution and and punish these people. So then we can like take that out of the whole equation, like get over that idea that God's going to do it. Then we won't feel justified in doing it. Cause I think that's where it, it backs it. it because God will, it makes sense that it's in our justice system. And that must be what justice looks like because what else can it be? It can't just be understanding. It has to be your bad end of story. You need to be dealt with. But then it's like, but Jesus is about grace, yeah? And and God is continuously telling us how God has mercy on us. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Where's that component come into play then? And it's, how do, how do you not see that pushing against, is it grace or is it punishment? Which one is it? Because doing both is is ridiculous. You can't. That's like saying, I'm beating you, child, but it's because I love you. That's not love. But again, we insist that it is because we have this idea about God. And so just going back to the incarceration, I've spent time in jail. And, you know, I these people have that I was in jail with had spent far more time in jail than I ever did. And I just thought, and nobody is, this is, what are you here for? A joint? Are you serious? How long have you been here? Nine months. And you still haven't even seen a judge yet. I mean, that is real. And when I came out of that, that was four years ago, the last time I had a a longer stint in jail. And I was like, I think that's what really helped shift me too. And I just was like, I can't, I can't agree with these prescriptions anymore because I saw what was going on and you're right. They're just forgotten. And If we're looking at the racial factor, the majority of these people that are forgotten are not white. And that says a lot about our country and our collective ideologies and shows we have a problem and need to change it. So, I I mean, I just thought that was a really great um, kind of correlation that you saw there. Because I've been feeling the same thing, and it's like at this, I don't want to point it out either. But at the because I I worry about that whole does it look like I'm being judgmental? But it needs to be discussed, right? We need to bring that out into the light. We need to look at it. And she is the author of the new Jim Crow, Michelle Alexander, and I believe it was Ava DuVernay who directed yeah. it with her. And Ava is that woman knows her shit. I, what did she do? The um. There was a Netflix series too. I think that she contributed on anyway, but yeah, it's excellent. The 13th. What's that? Yes. Yes. That one. Yeah. This is, they see us. I think. Yeah. 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 I think that I still haven't seen that yet, but I've, I've heard very good things and I know that's an eye opener for people. Yeah. I, uh, I got like, 
what's it, four episodes? Uh, I watched the three of them pretty straight through. I mean, they were heavy and tough, but after the third one, whichever one is before the last one, um, I just had to take a break for a while and I ended up not watching <laughs> the last one um, because it, it was it, it was really awful uh, to to watch and just really be emotionally present watching that but stuff and um, wasn't trump what's that oh it's because it's so well done and, and beautifully made and put together yeah but and wasn't amazing. trump didn't he like take an ad out or something for yeah. and it was situated on that story of those men and yeah yeah meant to bring him back the death penalty for those kids when there wasn't even corroborating evidence that they did it um, and that was in the era of uh, them often being referred to as super predators, and that's a yeah awful. Isn't it awful that we can look back and at those sound bites and those moments in history that are encased? And really, this is we've said these things about people, and I mean, not me and you, but collectively, I think we're still all accountable and. I see the, I, you said something earlier about understanding why you want that people want to burn things and break things. And, and I've heard that said before, and I can get into that mindset too, especially when you think about Trump as our president and him and his contribution to that specific case and everything that we've seen unfold in the last four years and everything that people are concerned about and fearing in the next four and it just kind of puts it all in a different perspective for us to go. Okay, we might have, we might have fucked up on some things. We might need to reconcile a lot. We we might need to go forward and find a new justice and situate ourselves around a new idea of politics maybe that isn't divisive but plays on the original meaning of just how the general population interacts and lives together. Because I feel like that word has been, it's used so ambiguously, and sometimes it feels like it grew into a monster it was never supposed to become. Similarly, like Christianity has, right? Yeah. We have these beautiful intentions for these ideas of radical implementations into society, and they grow into these monsters that end up benefiting nobody. And we are left in the predicament that we are where Donald J. Trump is running against Joe Biden and Joe Jorgensen and Kanye West. And that is our reality. <laughs> Dude, I forgot about Kanye West. Oh, I think he cool. forgot about the fact that he was running. So I think it's okay. But meanwhile, I just want to give a little bit of airtime again to Joe Jorgensen, who is the only female running for president for the libertarian ticket with Spike Cohen as her VP candidate. I believe that's his name. So just heard, doing my part to help my libertarian friends. Yeah, sweet. Well, um, the something that I've really tried to allow more space for in my brain as, um, as I came from being a passionate Christian to being like, okay, like, I hold on to the teachings of Jesus, but everything else seems really strange. And then to um, 
not believing that the Bible is the word of God or believing in a God at all anymore. Uh, I've tried to allow more space in my brain for it. While it seems and is, because I just, I studied the Bible a lot as a Christian and I'm still really familiar with it. Um, while it, it seems and feels easy for me to look at things like Jesus' heart for the foreigner and put that up against anything that Trump says about immigrants or the way that he wants to build the wall so passionately. The thing that I also have to keep in mind is like, well, when I was a Christian, I believed that Jesus was the one begotten son of God. And technically uh, he's part of the Trinity and the uh, one of the other parts of the Trinity was God the Father, which was known as Yahweh throughout the Old Testament. And the things that Yahweh said and did, according to the Old Testament, are kind of crazy, a little racist, really bloodthirsty. Um, yeah. So while um, I, I think that should be interjected into the conversation, a little bit more because it, it seems like um, Christians who who believe in the Bible as the inerrant word of God lean more on believing that whoever has been demonized is worthy of being demonized instead of it's like, hey, it, it's not entirely inconsistent with the Bible as a whole. Um, things that Trump says or does that are crazy or racist or all of any of the above. Um, and like one of the things that uh, became a big stumbling block for me in my faith as I started to transition out of it was uh, the fact that God told the Israelites in the New Testament, he told the Israelites to go and slaughter this entire nation and not even spare women and children. And there were different theologians I was looking to at that time to help me make sense of that. And people that were saying like, hey, that was the Israelites' way of trying to say that God was worthy to be worshipped and doesn't necessarily mean that God actually told them that. It's just like written in the Bible that way. It's like, okay. So, um, and I, I had real difficulty with that as I feel like a well-meaning person who's trying to follow the loving character of Jesus shouldn't have difficulty with it. But also at the end of the day, like if you if you believe that uh, Jesus and the Father slash Yahweh as known to like the Jews and Israelites in this time are the same person then it, it kind of like to me I don't want to be like too cynical or flippant about it it's like it makes sense like you can look at Trump and like he says this thing and then he says he's never heard of that thing before in his life next week and it's like yeah that's fine because <laughs> like there's a very uh very inconsistent 
character and code of ethics with the God of the Bible. It includes Yahweh as much as it includes Jesus. Mm-hmm. And um, I wonder how much of a part that plays in everything in uh, immigration policy and foreign policy and um, how we have the most prisoners in the world. It, um, I don't know. I, I, I just feel like the people that bring that up are labeled pretty immediately as like, oh, you just hate the Bible or you just mm-hmm. truth or want to rebel against God because you don't want to follow rules or, or whatever. It's like, that's there. That's, that's definitely in the Bible. Like God told, at least the Bible says, like more or less, um, that they're supposed to slaughter this entire nation and more than one because of like a blood feud. <laughs> like yeah. if, you, if you look at it, it's like, why did God say this? Because they were child molesters or because they were terrorists is like, no, if you go back to the story, someone was found, I think it was like Noah was found naked and Canaan didn't cover him up. And that's why it's like insane. Um, so. And we don't want to put in a lot of consideration for the fact that this happened so long ago before people had information about anything really. And so, I mean, that's the way I learned to start looking at it was like, they didn't have all the information and the stories might have been written this way, but perhaps what we focused in on or what this theologian focused in on or what that Pharisee focused in on wasn't actually what we were supposed to look at. Kind of that whole, I always go back to this. My husband and I read the same book within a week of each other. And when we came back to talk about it, it was like we read two completely different books. And I think that is probably what's going on with most of us when we read the Bible is we're like, hey, odds not what I got out of it, you know? And you're like, well, that's weird. Why? Because we all have these different lenses and so did the writers of the Bible. And it's like, we're not willing to consider that. We're not willing to go, well, that guy was kind of fucked up anyway because his dad beat the shit out of him. So maybe he had a weird freaking perspective and we should look at the moral of the story instead of the actions that he thought he was justified in doing. Right. Or what was the, I just think that sometimes we're not willing to give it a second look. We're just like, read it from the surface. This is, Oh, that's what it said that maybe we should bash the baby's heads against or And what is that story connected to? Isn't that because two women were arguing over the baby and he was like, oh, I'll do this. And then the real mother was like, oh, oh, no, 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 no. Okay, I don't, take it. You know, I don't want the baby. And the other one who turned out to be the fake mother is like, go ahead, do it. And so that's what we're supposed to be focusing on, not what, (laughs) like, look at what they learned from it, not the actual action. And so with that, I just think, and I, a lot of people say that we, we the flat reading of the Bible is just outdated now. And we need to go back like some of the traditional uh, Jewish rabbis do. They say every time you open up the, the scripture, 
It's supposed to reveal something different to you. You're supposed to get a new understanding, a new meaning, because now it pertains to this moment in your life and not as the, the only, only applications for the moment that existed 4,000 years ago when it was written or whatever it was. And I think that you know, we're probably in that same, same kind of category where the Bible is meaningful and it, there's a lot we can look back on and be appreciative of, but it's not the rule book for life. And it doesn't provide us with even a teensy bit of the actual answers and of the questions we have in life. And so we need to continue asking the questions and waiting for the answers to present themselves. And a fun thing to do is go back to the Bible and look at a verse that you've always relied on and it might not actually benefit you anymore. What does that mean? You know, what happens then? And so in the same regard, we're like, look at the Bible as it is unfolding something new. Because we love new. I mean, we are creatures of newness. We're like, give me the new. I need, I need my, apparently I need my iPhone updated every freaking year, right? Like we need the new. So go to the Bible and look at it anew. But I could go on and on. Unfortunately, my grandson has arrived and I need to go okay. squish him up. So <laughs> um, I just want to say thank you. And I wish we could have got to talking about your music, but I'd like your permission if I could to throw it on the podcast in the intro so we can give people a taste and I will be sure to direct people to where you're at but if you could just where can people connect with you and learn more about Adam Anderson and we'll have to do this again and focus solely on your music because I want to go there so how can people get in touch with you Adam um I am on Facebook with Adam Anderson music I'm on Instagram at adamanderson.music. Sorry about that background noise. I think the lawn people are here. Um, uh, I'm on Spotify at Adam Anderson. I've got a song on there called Be Still. So if you search Adam Anderson, Be Still, that'll come up. Um, And there's a link that I think you said you put in your show notes where you can... Connect directly with you and see all your work and all your affiliate connections and right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That like, uh, that should take you to my website, um, adamandersonmusic.com. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's where you could find, uh, well, it's like a, anyhow, um, but that's where you could find, uh, how to get my free song for download and how you can uh, find out about the book that I'm writing that I'll be releasing with my debut album and all that good stuff. I can't um, wait for so that. Yeah, it'll be in show notes. All right. Well, thank you, Adam, for sharing your perspective with us, and I'll talk to you soon. Awesome. All right. Take care.